15. So last week, we began a short series, a couple, couple weeks long it'll be, uh, looking at the role of leadership, primarily elders and deacons. And what we know is that elders are called to shepherd the church through the teaching of the word, and deacons are called to serve and meet the physical needs of the church. Both positions are essential for the health and the functioning of the church. Uh, today, we're primarily going to be looking at elders we're doing something a little bit different in these series or in this series. We're not looking primarily at those texts that address elders and deacons, <clears throat> but what we're doing is we're looking at various texts throughout the word and we're pulling out application that would be applicable for elders and for deacons. And again, today we'll primarily be looking at elders. Uh, and so today is a part two of, of a two-part series. Last week we were in first second Kings 18. In second Kings 18, here's the recap. Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom still goes by the name Israel, and Samaria is its capital. Assyria defeated it in 722 BC and took them off into captivity because of their unbelief and disobedience to God. Now Assyria is on the doorsteps of Judah, which is where Jerusalem is. Hezekiah is the king. Chapter 18 ends with, Will Judah... Will Hezekiah abandon their faith in the midst of this power? Because Assyria is saying, your God cannot save you. You have no chance. So will they keep the faith or will they abandon the faith? And so that's where we're at today. And that we're going to see how the, the end of the story is going to happen. And so what this chapter does, it shows us how we're to persevere in our faith in the midst of adversity. So it's, I mean, it's just very timely that we have what we heard today in India and now where we're at in our text. Because adversity is a reality. Trials, suffering is something that we will faith is, face. It is promised in scripture. In James in chapter one, he says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials because we know the purpose. We know that they're producing steadfastness. And it says when steadfastness have its full effect, will be complete will be perfect, meaning will be mature and made like Jesus. God is much more interested in our holiness, in our sanctification, than in our temporal happiness and comfort in this world. And that's the truth we need to know. Like he's much more interested in our eternal salvation and our holiness because as when he returns and we are with him in the new heavens and new earth there will be no pain no suffering we'll be fully like christ at those moments so he's working and preparing us for that day so here's the truth that i want us to see trials teach us to trust more in god than in the things in this world so that's what we're going to see and, and then we're going to just pull out some application as we talk through about elders uh, but what we're going to do is jump in. We're going to read the first seven verses of 2 Kings. So I want to encourage you, go ahead and stand. Uh, we stand at the reading of God's word here as a means of reminding us of the truth and the divine inspiration in which we have received this word. So here we go, verses 1 through 7. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, this is the, the, the message of the Assyrians, he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he went into the house of the Lord. 
And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, he's like the spokesperson for Assyria, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. Because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So let's pray and we'll dig in. Father, we once again, we just come to you right now in the name of Jesus. You are creator. You are ruler. You are the author and the sustainer of all life. Your might knows no limits. You are perfectly faithful. You are the rock, our strength, our shield that we cling to. And so, Lord, now as we look at a text, talking about how we stand firm in our faith, I pray, give us wisdom today. Give us grace. Give us mercy. Strengthen us in our faith. Hold us firm in your word. Persevere us that we would run the race of faith, that we will fight the fight of faith, which Paul talks about. Give us understanding today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, so we're going to walk through this whole chapter, all 37 verses, I believe. Um, we're going to read a lot of it. Some of it we'll, we'll summarize. So we'll start out. So Hezekiah, we'll look at Hezekiah's response. Remember, if you go back to the end of chapter 18, it ends with Assyria saying, what are you going to do? Are you going to trust in God? Your God has no chance. So what, what are they going to do? And so um, what we have here in the beginning verses is Hezekiah's response. Hezekiah covers himself in sackcloth and in, and in ashes. And this is the outward sign of repentance and brokenness and desperation before God. In verse 3, we read about the emotional distress that they're in. He says, this is a day of distress, of rebuke, and disgrace. And he, and he says, the children have come forth, have come to the point of birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. Now, whether that is the actual reality or it's proverbial, I think we get the point, right? Like, the case of Judah at this moment is that fear is all around them. They, they feel like they have no strength. They feel like they're in this, this room and the walls are caving in on them. Fear is paralyzing them. Hope has vanished. So just as we're about to just kind of keep going, just, have you ever felt like that? Some of you, I, I know some of your stories. I know that you've been there. But have you been there? Do you know what that's like, just to feel no hope? Feel like fear is just kind of sucked out of your, or um, hope is sucked out and just fear is paralyzing you. Maybe even in our, our present situation with COVID, there's a fear, and you're fearful of just even getting out, of doing anything, of any type of interaction. Maybe there's a fear on you with, with the political climate, and you're just looking at going, what's going to happen? Is this next election going to determine everything in our lives? And, and there's a fear that you have. 
Perhaps you've experienced the death of a loved one. Maybe you wrestle with, with depression and loneliness. Maybe you know what it's like to come home at the end of the evening and just drench your pillow with tears and just not feel like you ever have the strength to get back up and want to face the world again. Maybe you know what it's like to be so tight on finances that every day that you go out and you work as hard as you can and you're always still coming up short and you're never sure on how you're going to meet the bills and yet that's the reality every day and you just don't know if it's going to change. Or maybe you know of people like, like the one we've read in India today is literally beaten for their faith, wrestling with, can I persevere? How are we going to respond? And so, so the question is, what do we do? If that's where we're at, or if that's going to be where we're in the future, or if we encounter someone, how do we counsel them? How do we encourage them? What is it that we do? So Hezekiah is going to send for Isaiah. Isaiah is um, one of the prophets in the Old Testament. He wrote the book of Isaiah, which is 66 uh, chapters, one of the biggest books that we have. And so he's sending for Isaiah because he wants Isaiah to praise. He wants a word from God. That's what he wants. He wants Isaiah to pray to God, and he wants to get a word from God. So what's happening here is, is Hezekiah is turning to the word of God. That, that's what he's wanting. And that's what faith does. Faith responds to trials by clinging to the, to the word. When darkness comes, we don't need sensations. We don't need experiences. We don't need goosebumps. What we need is the truth of this word, the comfort and the hope that only comes from God's word. What we know is that faith comes from hearing the word, Romans 10, 17. And guess what? Our faith continues to grow as we come to the word. So that's, that's Hezekiah's response. That's to be our response. And as elders, uh, we're called to teach the word, teach the importance of the word. We're to model a life of dependence on the word. So we're the elders there, just this is God's word that sustains and strengthens us. So there's a whole church that we're to do that, and elders are to lead in that. So that's Hezekiah's response. Now in verses 5 through 7, we see Isaiah's first prophetic message. We'll look at his second one in just a little bit. But the servants come to Hezekiah, or to Isaiah, they give him the king's message, and Isaiah says in verse 6, do not be afraid because of what you've heard. Now, now just think about that. You literally have the king of Assyria with his army and their resume of destruction on every other land. And they're saying, yeah, don't be afraid because of what you've heard. Sounds foolish. And then he says, the reason is because God's going to turn them back home where the king will be killed there. And we'll see that at the end of this chapter. But Isaiah's doing something here, and this is what we see all throughout God's word. There are two realities that we all live among at all times. There is the visible reality that we all see. The visible reality is that Assyria is on the doorsteps. Assyria has destroyed many nations. The natural response to Assyria would be fear. And then there's the invisible reality, or what we might call the spiritual reality, that our God is bigger, and our God is greater. And our God rules over all, um, all people, all places, and all, and all events. And what we read in Isaiah 40 is that all the nations are like a drop in the bucket to him. And so Isaiah is saying, do not be fearful. Don't worry about the visible reality. 
trust in the spiritual, the invisible reality of who our God is, meaning his character and his promises. Trust in that. Because faith in the spiritual reality is what overcomes the fear in the visible reality. Does that make sense? Faith in the spiritual overcomes the fear in the visible. Faith trusts in the spiritual realities of God's word more than the visible realities that surround us. We need to know that. And let me just give a couple of examples. And I mean, we could spend days just walking through God's word. Example number one, David and Goliath. Remember, what, what, what is Israel doing before David shows up? They're cowering in fear. Goliath is this gigantic man, nine feet tall, you know, a beast of a guy. And nobody wants to go face him. So all of the, the Israelite army is cowering in fear. The visible reality is this guy's a giant. And then David shows up. And David's not bigger, stronger than anyone else. But he has a faith in God. And then he goes forth and fights and defeats Goliath. Think about the fiery furnace. You got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar. King of Babylon says, look, you will bow before my idol or be thrown into the fiery furnace. Visible reality, don't bow, you will die in the furnace. And Meshach and Abednego say, you can throw us in your furnace, but we're never going to bow to your God because our God can save us. But even if he doesn't save us, he is greater than you and we will never bow down. They're trusting themselves in the spiritual reality of who their God is more than the visible reality that surrounds them. Think about the cross of Jesus Christ. What's the visible reality? You have Jesus, the one who we all thought was the Messiah, the one who we all put our hope in. We thought this is the guy who's going to bring forth the kingdom of God. And now he's hanging on a cross, about to breathe his last breath. But what's the spiritual reality? What's the invisible reality? Our God at that moment, through Jesus Christ, is defeating sin, death, and Satan. So that we believe in him, we're forgiven, we have eternal life, we're adopted in the family of God. All throughout the Bible, we see faith, trust, and the invisible reality, the spiritual reality of who our God is, his promises, and his character, more than the visible reality that surrounds us. And this isn't positive thinking. This isn't just, hey, maybe God will show up, maybe he's strong enough, and maybe we'll get through this. This isn't just, hey, suck it up, let's just try to think good thoughts right now. And we can give at least three reasons. One, we have 66 books testifying of the faithfulness of God on how he continues to overcome the visible realities that surround us. Number two, we have the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That kind of seals the deal right there. Number three, we also have this chapter. And then when we get to the end of the chapter in a few moments, we're going to see that King Sennacherib, which is just a fun name, uh, sounds like he's eating a snack, right? I'm, every time. Um, King Sennacherib is going to go back to Assyria where he's going to be killed on his own home turf in his own temple, which we'll look at that because that's quite ironic. Um, so this is what faith is. Faith is trusting in the spiritual reality of who our God is more than the visible reality around us. And when we do that, that's what overcomes fear. And so think about it. If that's what faith does, what do you think sin does? Faith wants us to focus on the invisible, the spiritual reality of who our God is. So sin wants to blind us to that. 
so that all we would see is the visible reality. Because if the visible reality looks so big, then what happens? Then God looks so small. Think of it like this. If we go outside on a clear day, very clear here, on a clear day, and we go look at Mount Rainier, Mount Rainier is 14,000-something feet tall. It is the coolest sight that we have here in Washington. I truly love seeing it every single time. But guess what? If I put my hand right in front of my face, I can't see Mount Rainier. Now, what if I did this, and then I said, hey, my hand is bigger than Mount Rainier? You would, you would think I'm just being silly, and I, but what if I tried to convince you? No, really, look, I can't see it. My hand is obviously bigger than Mount Rainier, so obviously my hand, you would now think, start thinking, he might need some help. That's what sin does. That's what sin does. It wants to make the physical reality, whatever, whatever it is, whatever the relationship is, whatever the financial issue is, whatever it is that you're going through, appear so big that that's all you can see because when that's all you can see, what you're not seeing is God and he appears very small, which is why the Israelites were cowering instead of going and fighting Goliath because they couldn't see him past this man and yet God is the one who created this man in all things. So let me ask you again, what do you wrestle with right now? What is that fear? Is it COVID? Is it a relationship? Is it finances? Is it death? I mean, for, for Judah, it's Assyria. They're literally on the doorstep. And Isaiah is saying, trust in God more than in the reality of what you see. And so if we're going to do that, there's a couple things we need. One, we, we need to actually then know the word, Right? Like we're going to need to know the Word of God. And, and, and here's a tip. Be, start being in the Word right now. Because there's going to come a day when, when the trial comes, and, and you're going to wonder why it's so hard. And you're going to wrestle with, can you even persevere in your faith? The soldier doesn't wait for the battle to start training, right? We train every single day because we know that day is coming. One of the ways as Christians we strengthen our faith and prepare ourselves, ourselves for the day of battle, which is every day because there's little trials and big trials, is by being in the Word of God. Number two, we need to be in community because we need to remember that sin is blinding, right? So sin is going to make me actually believe that my hand is bigger than Mount Rainier. And so what do I need you to do at that moment in my life? I need you to come help pull my hand down. I need you to help point out my sin. I need you to remind me of the truth of God's character and his promises. Because for some reason at that moment, I'm not seeing it. And that is the battle that we're all in. That's why we do table groups here. That's why we believe it's so incredibly essential to be in life with other Christians because nowhere in the Bible do we see the Lone Ranger Christianity. And to think that you can do it is again the blinding effect of sin. Because we're called to be in community so that we would encourage one another. So again, the role of elders here would be to equip the church with the word. So we don't just, we don't just know and model, but we're called to, to teach, to equip, and to encourage the church to be in community, to help create systems, to help um, uh, things like table groups to function, to encourage relationships. So then we go on. I'm just going to summarize verses 8 through 13. So in this section... Assyria is going to, uh, once again, uh, give 
Judah, its resume of power. He's going to say, these are all the nations we've killed. You have no chance. And it seems that they probably wrote a letter. Maybe they gave it verbally and uh, in a written letter. But they're, but they're once again attacking the faith and the God of Judah. And so what's interesting is if you just look at the flow of the narrative, you have Hezekiah responds with the word, that they hear the word of God, and then what? The trial seems to increase. And that's something we need to know, is that trials don't just ma- magically vanish when we pick up our Bibles, when we start praying, or we get involved in a table group. Like, they don't just magically disappear. If so, then Christianity would be more like a vending machine. And we would trust more in our practice than in the object of our faith. Does that make sense? Like, like we would trust more in, I read the Bible today, so therefore everything is going to go well. That would be the practice of my faith versus the object of my faith. I read the word so that I would know Christ and love him more so I'll be strengthened to stand firm in any trial. Do you see the difference? So if, if you just read your Bible or just prayed, then everything went well, then we would put our faith in the practice rather than the object, Jesus Christ. Which is why that's not the way that that works. And so we need to realize that very often in the trial, as we begin to battle with our faith, as we begin to fight, as we begin to try to stand firm, the temptation, the trial might increase. And so what real faith does is real faith will continue to persevere. And again, we need one another to do that. And that's the role of elders. Elders teach the church to persevere in the faith. Real faith perseveres. And in order to do that, we need every single person to help out. Again, I'm I'm giving application for elders, but by no means am I saying that elders are the only ones who do this. They just kind of lead in these ways, but we're all called to do this so we all stand firm and we finish the race. So then we move into Hezekiah's prayer in verses 14 to 19. So notice what's happened. Assyria has now uh, responded, and they're raging back against Judah. And now Hezekiah, he hears their response. He's the temptation, the trial has increased. Okay, I found this on the web. Perhaps now responded in the Legion battle. That's cool. I use Siri, and apparently it, it works at weird times. You know, I've had that happen at times before, but I've always had it on silent. That's cool. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> All right, here we go. So, anyways, so now Hezekiah is going to pray, and I mean, I would love to spend like a whole sermon on this prayer. Uh, just personally, uh, in my own life, this was a really good prayer for me this week, just working through seeing how Hezekiah prays. And let me just say this. Spend time looking at how he addresses God. What he does in this prayer. In fact, on your uh, worship guide, I think there's a little box with some additional text there that says, hey, check out these prayers. Um, So I encourage you, read those later. Let your prayer life not, not be shaped by your desire to eat food. Do you know what I mean? Like, we got the dinner table, and so my prayer is, dear Jesus, thanks for this day, bless the food, amen, let's go. I am praying, my prayer is really motivated and shaped by my desire and speed to eat food, rather than my honor for God. I'll just, 
generalizing that. Hopefully our prayers aren't terrible like that all the time, but I think sometimes they are, right? But, but what we have here is Hezekiah shares, teaches us how our, how our prayers should look. So I just encourage you, let your prayers be shaped by the Bible. And so this was just a really good reminder for me in my own life this week. And I encourage you, just do that. Now, yes, there are sometimes those really quick prayers where we just say, God, help, and that's great. And we should have those spontaneous prayers. But I think those spontaneous prayers should be rooted in a bed of intentional word-shaped prayers. I think that's what those things are to come out of. Anyways, so that's kind of a side note. We're just going to look at the prayer today. So uh, here, real quick. We're talking about trusting in the spiritual reality more than the visible reality, right? What do you think prayer does? Just think through prayer. What are you actually doing when you pray? You're saying, God, I need you, the spiritual invisible reality around me, to intervene in the visible reality. Faith, our prayer, is the exercise of our faith that we depend upon God. And I know that prayer is something we, we wrestle with, and it's that thing we're always kind of hoping we do better on, but we get discouraged. But I want to encourage you. You have the Spirit of God in you. You have the Word of God showing you how to pray. And table groups, again, and just being in community with others is one of the necessary things that we would encourage one another to be in prayer. But wherever you're at in your prayer life, I just want to encourage you to think through how you are praying to set a time, set aside time every day to be intentional in prayer and fight for that time. Guard that time. Maybe even right before you get, before you, when you get in your car, before you turn on anything, any radio or anything, pray. Just spend time praying to God, memorizing scripture. Okay, let's look at the prayer. We have two requests and two truths. It goes request, two truths, and then the second request. Uh, so the first request, verse 16, Hezekiah says, God, incline your ears, open your eyes. He's saying, God, I need you to hear me. Now, he's not saying, God, you're asleep. God, I know you're not paying attention, so if you could turn this way again. He's just simply expressing his heart's desire, God, I need you. Truth number one, we see this in verse 17. Hezekiah says, the king of Assyria has defeated many nations. It's an obvious truth. We have the resume. Many nations have been destroyed. Truth number two in verse 18. Let's just read this. This is kind of fun. He says, um, uh, starting in verse 17, Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria has laid waste the nations and their lands. That's truth number one. Truth number two. And have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. But they weren't really God. Let's just be clear on that. So just think. Hezekiah is thinking through this prayer. Assyria's defeated many people. But that's kind of like the NFL team boasting that they just beat the, varsity, or the JV uh, high school team, right? In football. Like, it's not really something you boast about. Assyria's defeated a lot of gods, but they're not real. They're made of wood and stone. And so now we come to the request. Save us for your glory. We see this in verse 19. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So he says, save us for your glory. Because faith seeks God's grace and his glory through prayer. That's what we're doing. We're saying, God, we need your help, and we want everyone to know that you are God. 
We want everyone to know that the only way I can stand firm in this trial, in this situation, is because of you. So I just want to encourage you. Let us be people of, the, of prayer. Let's be people of the word. Let's be people of prayer, trusting in the invisible spiritual reality of our God every day. And we go into Isaiah's second prophetic message in verse 20 and 28. Now, look at verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. Do you hear anything awesome right there? God heard Hezekiah's prayer. That God hears our prayers. And guess what? Verses 21 through 28 are only in your Bible because Hezekiah prayed. Like, just get that. Like, the only reason now we have this second prophetic message from God is because Hezekiah prayed. And I will just say that there are many Christians, there are many people in the church today who are not experiencing God's grace because they don't pray. There's much more that God would bless and encourage with if we would simply pray. Evidence right here. If he doesn't pray, we won't have this. God gives grace in response to our fears. We're not earning grace. Don't take it. Don't misconstrue it. But God says, if you will pray, he will give grace. He loves. He says, if you will ask, what? You will receive. That's Matthew chapter 7. Jesus teaching us how to pray. So again, I just want to encourage you, let's be people of prayer because we know our God hears us and he's a good father who loves to answer us. And so in this section, you have verses 21 through 24, which just describe the arrogance of Assyria. And they're saying, look, we have destroyed everyone and it's all by our strength. And then you have verses 25 through 28, which show the absolute foolishness of Assyria. And let me just read. It says, have you not heard, this is God speaking, that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength and dismayed and confounded, have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Now just think about this. Assyria is saying, look at what I've done. And then you have God saying, did I not determine that? Verse 1, like, I, I gave you that power. I gave you that success. See, what we're, again, reminded of is that our God rules over all of creation. And our faith rests upon his sovereignty. That he rules not only the godly, but the ungodly. The only reason you and I are here and alive at this moment is because God gives us breath. The only reason your organs are working is because God sustains you. And he knows you individually and personally and so our faith acknowledges that the true and ultimate reality is that god is in control at all times and that's what that's what isaiah reminds us of here in response to hezekiah's prayer all right i've added it to our seriously what do you want to change it to i've never <laughs> syria that's it 
It's of the devil. See, it just said it again. All right, we'll just not refer to that pagan nation anymore. Man, that's crazy. I'm going to have to, like, turn that off. Um, all right. So weird. Um, let me just say this. We, we all need to be reminded that the arrogance is something that we can all be guilty of. And we can all begin thinking that our successes, our abilities, our, our future is all determined by us. Just, just, just be reminded that God's the one in control of everything. And that we're called just to live in dependence on him. And that's where we're going to find our joy. And that's where we're going to find our comfort. I'm scared to say that word anymore. Um, all right, we're going to look at the last section. Verses 32 to 37. There's three things I want us to see, but we got to read it because it is it's so fun. Uh, here he goes. Uh, actually, we'll start oh, I'm in 19 or in 18. 19. 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of those people. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. The Sna- then Sennacherib, Sennacherib, the king, departed. I'm leaving out a word just so you know because I'm really afraid of what's going to happen. Then Sennacherib, the king, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramalek and Sharezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat, and Irshadon, his son, reigned in his place. There's so much we could say, but here it is. Um, number one, uh, Satan can do not, cannot do anything more than what God allows. Just know that. This nation cannot shoot an arrow, raise a shield, or attack one wall of Judah. Why? Because God won't allow. Assyria Dang it, I said it. It might appear powerful. Satan might appear powerful. There might appear to be chaos. COVID might appear to be powerful. But none of those things wreck the plans of God. Satan is just a leash, is a dog on a leash, right? He's not running rampant. He's under the absolute sovereign control of God. So whatever trial you're in, you're not at that trial's disposal. It's not what rules over you. God is the one who rules. And so in this chapter, we're just being reminded, turn back to God. Trust in him. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That doesn't mean your strength. That means your spiritual maturity in Christ. God will not let you be tempted more so that as you depend on his grace, you will stand firm. Just know that it's not at all referring to you and your strength. But what we have is God is faithful. He knows exactly what you can endure. So whatever you're going through is not outside the rule of God, but he's sovereignly working that, that we would trust in him. Number two, God says he defends his people. Verse 34, he's going to do it for his namesake, his glory, and for his servant David, for those who believe in him. And that night, an angel, 185,000 people get struck down by one angel. Good thing he didn't send two angels. Or a host of angels. Or God himself come down. 
We have that all throughout God's word. This, this typology, this foreshadowing of the much greater judgment. You got the flood. You got Sodom and Gomorrah. You got this nation. All pointing to the fact that there's an ultimate judgment one day. And all who do not believe in God will face that. And there is no hope. That's the reality of all evil and all chaos in the world. It will be judged by God. Number three, God rules. God's rule and power has no limits. This is the part that's really cool. All of it's cool. But 37, where is Sennacherib when he's killed? He's on, he's in home territory, Nineveh, capital. He's in the temple of his God, home turf advantage totally goes to him, right? Back then, gods are geographically based. So as, as this nation continues to kill other nations and destroy them, their God kind of grows in power and shows his rule. So what does God do? God kills him on his turf in his, in his temple of his false God. What do you think the point is? There's one God. And his rule, his power, his might has no limits, whether geography or place or event or anything. And so he's literally saying to you and I, in whatever trial we are in, we can stand firm because our faith rejoices in the righteous rule and judgment of our God. That's what we have in this chapter. He teaches us how to stand firm, not because of anything but because of us, but real faith, trust in the invisible reality of God. We do that by trusting in the word of God. We do that through prayer. We do that by encouraging one another because we know sin is blinding and we need help. And we trust in God's sovereignty, knowing that he rules. And that no event, no person, no enemy, no disease can take one more step than what God allows. That's the truth of God's word. So I want to encourage you in that. I pray you are encouraged in that. I pray take this chapter and just know it. Encourage others as they're in trials. And I also, I just, as we're talking about elders and talking about these positions, I want to encourage you, once again, for men, if you just consider if God's leading you to be an elder. And again, don't answer that for him. Well, I don't know enough. Well, I've done too, you know. Don't answer it for him. Just, is God leading me this way? Because if, if what we see in God's word, that as Christians, we're all going to be in trials, and we see that today in various ways. We see it in India and here, we need, we need the whole church, but we need people. We need men who have been guided by God that they would take these positions and help lead and equip and strengthen the church. So I just ask that you would consider, is that where God might be leading you today? And just be praying. Again, it's not about, next week we're going to see the character and we're going to see why we're actually qualified as we look at Moses. And so we'll get to that more next week. But trials are reality, but our God is greater, and we're called to trust in him. Elders are just simply an instrument that helps in that. But it's all by God's grace. Let's pray, and we'll take communion and celebrate our God. Father, we, we come to you now, and we just know that you reign sovereign over all creation. God, I pray that we actually do trust in you more than the visible realities that surround us. Free us from our fear. May we be people of your word. May we be a praying people. May we be in community with one another. God, we just ask that you would keep us in the faith. 
keep our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are going through personal persecution for their faith, keep them in the faith. Lord, raise up elders for your church in general, not just here, but for, for your church. But we acknowledge that you alone, Jesus, you are our chief shepherd. And we trust in you, we praise you, in your name, Jesus, amen.